Please listen carefully. 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 Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast, where two reasonable social scientists discuss important topics by focusing on just the facts and none of the unneeded opinions and bias. I'm Lawrence Eppard, here with my co-host, Allie Dagnus. How are you today, Allie? I am doing great. We have a monster-sized episode today with a topic that is my all-time favorite. We're looking at the news. The news. I love this topic. And I know you got a lot of experience with it. I mean, you used to work at C-SPAN for a long time, Oh, no. This goes back way further than that. And in fact, this will tell you how you are young and I am old. One of my favorite favorite uh, young people shows when I was a young person included a segment called the Gary Ganoos show with Gary Ganoos when all the news, all the news was good Ganoos with Gary Ganoos. <laughs> so I was raised with some good Ganoos. And, you know, you always talk about how I, I am a big Muppet fan and I am. Did you know, Lawrence, that there is a reporter, a Muppet reporter? He's known as his name is actually the newsman. Did you know that? He reports on things. I did not. Could you do the voice for us? I can't. You know why? Do you know who originally did the newsman voice? Jim Henson himself. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So I would not. Those are those are hollowed. Those are some hollowed chords right there. I would not step on the on the vocal chords of, of the late Jim Henson because he's a hero. What are the chances that my mystery guest that I have planned for you and psst, listeners remember, send in your guesses to utterly moderate at gmail.com by August 29th. But uh, Allie, what are the chances that our mystery guest at the end of August will be a Muppet? Oh my God. I can't, I just, I <laughs> like, I got so excited there for a second. I couldn't even speak. That just made, that would make me so happy. Um, so yes, I, I, the news is built into, it is into my blood and may, it may just be like growing up in DC, you know, because I was raised around all these kids whose parents were reporters and, um, you know, a, a kid that I went to elementary school with, his mom was a White House reporter. And I went to sleepaway camp with um, Jenny Levine, whose dad was Irving R. Levine. And on the last day of camp, when all of our parents came to to pick us up and, you know, drive us home, we wouldn't let her leave until her father said, this is Irving R. Levine. NBC News, Washington. And we all <laughs> clapped. We were so excited because um, he was such a, a national institution. Um, so I've always loved the news. And then I worked at C-SPAN, which is not the news. It is public affairs. There's True. a very big difference um, because C-SPAN, bless it, uh, is not meant to, you know, hit breaking stuff um, and, you know, inform in that kind of fast way. It is meant to shine a light onto some of the more boring elements of public affairs in our government and it's a public service and it's a national treasure and it's all the good things, but it's not, it's not the news, but even beyond C-SPAN, I do love myself the news. It is a great topic. Yeah. I mean, you grew up in DC and you worked at C-SPAN and I grew up in the DC metro area. So I was in the suburbs of DC and so a very DC centric childhood. And um, one of the things that it does for you, obviously there are negatives to it, right? You're sort of in that bubble, but one of the things that it does for you is it really gives you a lot of exposure and a lot of contact with people who are in a variety of professions. So politics obviously is one of them, but also uh, in the news. 
and uh, my own family. My grandfather was a newsman for a long time. I didn't know that. That's cool. And I'm really close to my grandparents, my grandmother, Lorraine. Um, I just adore. She's just a tremendous person, such an important part of my life. My grandfather as well. He passed away recently, but a man that I just adored. He was such a huge part of my life. My closest confidant. I He was the best man at my wedding. Um, but I, I say all this because in having people like that in your life uh, and having people in these professions in your life, what it gives you is a peek behind the curtain. And so you hear a lot of people say things about media across the country, you know, really sort of stereotypical things about whether they do or don't trust the media. Um, but when you talk to people who are journalists, you talk to people who work for newspapers and you hear about the really tedious and, and, and just intense scrutiny that they put stories through, it gives you a, a really high level of respect and trust in what they do and the information that they provide to us. Um, so my grandfather, he worked for the New York Times and the Financial Times, but his longest position was with the Journal of Commerce. He was the Washington bureau chief there until the 1990s when he retired. And I actually went to work with him a few times and got to see up close what he did there and see the process and talk to the folks that he worked with. And also just over the years, I had countless conversations with him about the work that they did at the paper. And he would tell me about these multiple layers of fact checking and quality control that all their important stories would be subjected to. And, you know, they're journalists, they would be identifying multiple credible sources and sorting through all these documents to verify their information. And then like multiple editors and sometimes lawyers would double and triple check their sources and triple check their information before the story went to print. They'd tighten up the structure and the completeness and the quality of the story. Um, and, and on our pod, we've talked to folks like this, like Michael Anthony Dees from the Chicago Tribune. He said that uh, when he edited for the Tribune, he would attempt to discredit the story. And only when the story could stand up to that scrutiny did it make it to print. That was what my grandfather showed me in person when I went to work with him, but also through countless conversations with him. Um, when they would print the stories, the information would be attributed um, so that other news organizations could verify it. I mean, it's an incredible process. It's a process that's indispensable to a healthy democracy. It keeps the public informed of crucial information that we would not know otherwise, right? And it holds government accountable in only the way that an independent news media can. And despite the many examples of bad media outlets today, there is more good journalism than ever. And we have easier access to it than ever. And and I'm really happy, really um uh, I really appreciate having grown up around folks in that industry, which growing up in D.C., you meet a lot of those folks who were able to show me that, you know, the, the good, legitimate, credible organizations do an outstanding job of getting us accurate information. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I mean, and that goes to uh, it goes from a place that is sort of as as uh, dogmatically nonpartisan as C-SPAN, where you would get into trouble if you expressed an opinion. Like you are really not, I'm not kidding. You you aren't. Not here, not at home, not in your head, not in your dreams. <laughs> not yet, like never. <laughs> you are not allowed to have an opinion um, ever, ever, ever. Because the whole point of C-SPAN is to be, you know, it's not even like just the facts. It's like they they put up a camera and they just say, here, like you decide. <laughs> just just watch for yourself. We're not even going to identify anything. Um, it, it just is uh 
it's, I mean, it really is a public, it is the very definition of a public service. Um, but from the folks that I met there, a lot of people moved on to different news organizations. Everyone who I know, who I've kept in touch with, are smart, hardworking, and just do their darndest to make sure that the stories that they are reporting are fair and sourced and that they can, as reporters, go out there and find the truth and have it be verified. Because if not, the business model shows that if you make stuff up and you're in the news, then you don't last very long because nobody can trust you. And, um, you know, when we're talking about analysis, that's one thing. But if you're talking about journalism, that's something else entirely. So people have to be able to trust you. And that means that you are, in fact, verifying the information that you're getting and you are presenting just the truth. Right. And when me and you are talking about journalism, we are talking about the legitimate journalists. We're not talking about Rachel Maddow. We're not talking about Tucker Carlson. We're not talking about these folks that spread misinformation and oftentimes disinformation. We're talking about legitimate journalism, the Associated Press, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Boston Globe. I mean, when, you, when you're when you talking about the good, credible journalists out there, they do outstanding work. When you actually look behind the curtain and look at the work that they're doing, it is outstanding. It is factual. It is verified information. And because of that, we should all, I think, have a deep amount of respect for them. And I know that I do. I do, too. I do, too. It's a lot of heavy lifting. And, um, you know, the movies about journalism make it look very exciting, uh, very sexy and very fast paced. And sometimes it is. But the vast majority of the time, it's a lot of slow, methodical fact checking, um, sourcing and trying to get the information right. And, um, you know, and proofreading for grammatical errors, you know, the things that aren't, you know, that don't make for a really, really good hot movie. So, um, so my, my fedora, my invisible fedora goes off to them because without journalism, you know, we would be woefully, um, unprepared for living a, a life of democracy. And, you know, the first amendment comes first for a reason. Um, we need to have the journalists out there who are holding our elected officials accountable, um, who are speaking truth to power, and who are providing us with the facts that we need in order then to make our own assessments and then read the analysis and the commentary about the facts that the journalists have gathered. That's the order that it should go in. We need the facts first. Absolutely. And we frequently have guests on our show that help us to understand all of this on a much deeper level. So on previous episodes, we've talked about news media with former Chicago Tribune editor Michael Anthony Dees, with former Chicago Tribune editor and current NewsGuard executive editor Jim Warren. We've talked to the founder and CEO of AdFontes Media and creator of their media bias chart, Vanessa Otero, and New York Times columnist Carl Zimmer, among others. And today's guests should be excellent additions to this lineup. We're going to talk to Jason Adrians from the Wisconsin State Journal and Judy Kurtz from The Hill. So first up, we will speak with Jason Adrians, the national editor for Lee Enterprises, where he manages all national and international content for 77 daily news organizations throughout the country. Jason is also the executive editor for the Wisconsin State Journal, 
one of Lee's largest news organizations. This should be a great conversation with Jason Adrians coming up next. Jason Adrians, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thank you so much, because we know how busy you are, because local news is incredibly important, and that's why you are here today. (laughs) So can you begin kind of broadly and tell us about the work that you do? Yeah. So, so first of all, once again, thanks for, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate the opportunity. Love the pod. Big fan. Um, I think for me, the work that I do every day kind of falls into two different categories. And so Lee Enterprises is the company I work for. We own and operate 77 daily news organizations throughout the company or throughout the country. Um, and so I am the executive editor of the Wisconsin State Journal based in Madison, Wisconsin, but I'm also Lee Enterprises national editor, which means I'm responsible for uh, national, international, political news, sports news, lifestyles, um, through all of our markets across the company, or I'm going to keep saying the company, but it's the country. And uh, just making sure that we utilize our wire services the right way, that we're making good, fair, balanced decisions when it comes to what kind of wire news we put into our print products on our digital products. And so there's that end of it. And then here in Madison, uh, we've got a great team And, you know, we're a state capital. We've got the Wisconsin Badgers and people are rabid about politics and sports here. And so (laughs) at any point of the day, uh, I might be dealing with a situation on a breaking news story in Washington or Afghanistan, or maybe I'm dealing with something like the Badgers Media Day here, or right now we're moving, uh, the university is moving Chamberlain Rock off campus. Um, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a rock that reminds people of the campus's supposedly racist past. And so, you know, kind of every day is back and forth between national news, local news, and just trying to make sure that, uh, that the, the train stays on the tracks. I will say though, as I rattle off my duties, those are the things I have to keep an eye on. But honestly, we have awesome journalists here. We have a national sports editor who probably could work anywhere she wanted to. She's chosen Lee Enterprises to be here. We have a national lifestyles editor who, again, could could work anywhere. And so I am lucky that I have a team that honestly makes us look good. I just try to keep people happy and uh, make sure that we don't make bad decisions. But we've had, we have an awesome team all the way up and down through Lee Enterprises. I have a really quick follow-up question, um, and it might be a little controversial. Is Bucky Badger still the mascot in Wisconsin? Because if so, <laughs> I have a small Bucky Badger from when one of my best friends, Michelle, was there. Yeah, so Bucky Badger is still uh, still the mascot in Wisconsin. Yes. Although, Excellent. although I will say, after the last three months. Uh, Bango the Buck out of Milwaukee. Uh, you see a lot of uh, you see a lot of him around because of the Milwaukee Bucks run well, to the uh, the NBA championship. Yeah, but you know Bucky is uh, listen. Bucky's up all over my nine year old's room. Okay. Uh, if if we're gonna go to Camp Randall or the Cole Center for a football or a basketball game, you know we love Bucky. He's he's the mascot, and uh, and and we wouldn't have it any other way. I don't think Bucky's going anywhere. 
Excellent. Thank you. I have no further questions. Great. <laughs> well, I, have, I have a really, really important question. Jason, sure. uh, you listed all of those things that you do nationally. Is that it? Oh. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think, I think, I think what I would say to that, and I, and I say this to, to my colleagues and my friends all the time, um, you know, when, when a 14 or a 15 hour day seems like two hours, it means that you really like the work. You think it's really important. You're working with good people. The days fly by. There's nowhere else I'd rather be. Um, maybe I could pick up some more duties if you guys wanted me to. Is there a room you need cleaning or something <laughs> like that? Can I clean out your pod studio? I mean, I do have three or four hours uh, still in the middle of the night unaccounted for, and I can always <laughs> on sleep on the weekends if you'd like. If unaccounted for. <laughs> Well, you do editing work and we probably both need some of that. So don't offer, you know, don't offer it up so quickly because we might take you up on it. <laughs> Can you talk us through the um, from beginning to end kind of you, you get uh, word of a story that something is you know really important and happening. How does it begin with you as the editor and then get to the place where I am reading it in your newspaper? So that's, that seems like an easy question. And I appreciate the question. There's so much that goes into um, answering that question, though. Uh, we had a, uh, a summit recently in our company between our top news editors and our audience team. And one of the things that we talked about was how, you know, not every story is equal. Right. I mean, and so we kind of have like a level one story, a level two story and a level three story. And 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 so depending on what the event is, whatever the subject matter is, I think the the the, the dissemination of those stories, the way that that the information is gathered, the way that the information is published, I think it's different. So so we have stories every day that we'll get a press release on or we'll find out about an accident or a death or a situation at the Capitol that we know everybody in our market, TV stations, radio stations, other websites, they're going to have it within 15 or 20 minutes. And those stories that are breaking generally only have a shelf life of about one to three days. And so I think what happens there is we in Madison, anyway, we're well positioned at, at, at all hours of the day. We have one reporter on our staff, and it's, it's, it's usually the same person in the morning and at night, but depending on how the schedule is going, we have somebody pretty much tethered to a computer waiting to write about whatever comes up. We call that person an urgency reporter. And so, you know, if we're getting information from what I would consider to be a reliable source, like a sheriff's department, police department, uh, the University of Wisconsin, um, you know, reinstituting a mask mandate for, for the fall. That's something that we know is really important to push out to our audience members as quick as we can. That information is going to be available everywhere. We want people to know that they can come to us for those stories. And so oftentimes we'll start with simply two paragraphs, a push alert, a good headline, and then we'll get that out there and we'll continue to build on that story. And you can see that life cycle play out at every news organization, at least every daily news organization, probably in the country. Um, that's also what I would consider to be a level one story. A level two story is probably something that, you know, maybe you got a tip about something that was happening in your community or 
you know, maybe a business was about to make a major change in the way that they're serving a meal at night or, you know, a, a favorite bar is going to close down or, you know, a, a local developer is thinking about knocking down this historical site and, you know, building a $40 million mixed housing development, right? I think that's probably a level two story where we find out about it, but we're not finding about it finding out about it through a press release, we're hearing about it from the people who we've spent our entire careers developing relationships with. And so we want to make sure that we've got the facts right there. We'll probably take some time to vet the story. Uh, We want to make sure our sourcing is spot on. And if it's a situation where you've got you know, one group of people saying, this is what we need to do with the property. And then you've got another group of people saying, you can't take this away from us. Don't develop here. We want this to stay. We want to make sure that all sides are equally represented. And you can't do that in 20 minutes. You have to have those conversations. You have to make sure that all your angles are covered. Um, And then it goes through a rigorous editing process. We have usually two people that'll take a look at a story like that And that's something that we'll push out when we know we've got it rock solid and that it's true and accurate and fair and balanced. And that story is something that we're hoping, at least as a news organization, maybe has about, you know, a three to seven day shelf life. And maybe we'll continue to add to it because we all know you can reach out to a source and say, hey, this is what we think we're going to report. We'd like to give you the opportunity to speak about it. Maybe they'll take a pass. But then when they see the story come out, they'll be like, hey, you didn't represent this angle of it, whatever it is. And usually those conversations happen in a, in a pretty respectful way, despite what you know what you might hear. Uh, we do have people who really, just like us, want to make sure that the information is, is accurate and, and very thorough. And so we will continue to add, reshape, tweak a story over the course of a day or two. Um, Sorry to interrupt you, but before you go on to talk about level three stories, can you expand a little bit on how you vet sources? We have some awesome reporters, reporters who, you know, like the three of us, I mean, they eat, sleep and breathe daily journalism, local journalism. And so when I talk about shoring it up, we've got people who, you know, are relentless about making sure that we're reaching out to as many people as we need to reach out to for a certain story and they'll put something together. But we then as editors need to go in and make sure that we're approaching the story the right way. I mean, it's a, it's a collaboration between editors and reporters where reporters saying, this is the information that I've gathered. This is what I know to be true. This is how I've written it. And then an editor takes a look at that story and says, I think you have all the information here, but did you consider that maybe these things that are here, maybe lower in the story, maybe you need to move these up. Maybe need th- this paragraph needs to be rewritten. Um, you know, that's what I would say is shoring up. And when I talk about vetting sources, I mean, you know, I think that there's probably no other way to say it than we want to make sure the people who we're talking to know what they're talking about. What's their background? Where are they from? And also, what's their vested interest in the story? Why are they pushing us so hard to report on something that we hadn't heard about yesterday? What's their, 
what's their angle? And of course, you know, you want to take everybody at face value. I am not one of those people who um, just enters into every conversation with a, with a, with a mistrust. I want to trust everybody because I would like to believe that we're all living here in Madison, Wisconsin, throughout the state. We all kind of want the same thing, right? We all want to make sure that the information that we're reading is true and coming from people who know what they're talking about. But sometimes that means that you have to do a little bit of digging into who is trying to give you the information. Why are they giving that information to you and not somebody else? Are they really trying to um, engage with you in a, in a fair way and they trust you as a reputable source of news? Of course, that's what we want to hear at the Wisconsin State Journal, that people trust us. People see us as a source of valuable information. But we also have to have to be honest with ourselves and know that there are people uh, today, whether it's a business or uh, a lobbyist or a political arm that sees us as a way to leverage their narrative into getting it out through a mainstream reputable news outlet. Um, and, and so when that happens, I think that we just want to make sure that the people we're talking to have the right motivations for giving us a story or a piece of information. And that if they don't, it doesn't mean it's still not a story, right? I mean, like somebody can give you a story idea for a very self-serving, uh, for a very self-serving kind of thing. It doesn't mean it's not a story. It just means that you probably have to make sure that when you're talking to that person, um, you're, you're, you're listening to what they're saying. You're asking very probing questions, but then you also have to go and look at who they are, um, what stories they've been associated with, what business they're trying to operate, where they're trying to move their narrative. I think for me, if I had a reporter today come to me and say, I'm getting this piece of information from this person. I'm not confident about their motivations, but I also can't ignore what they're telling me. You know, I think the conversation I would want to have with that reporter and their editor would be, well, who else knows about this? Who else is talking about this? You know, and, and again, it could be, it could be a shooting. It could be a, a police incident. It could be, um, you know, something in the government, something with a bill. It could be as simple as, um, I'm trying to think of other examples, but I think the point is that my, my, my direction to that reporter would be, let's come up you and I, or you and your editor and me with five to 10 other people that you can go talk to, to try to figure out more about this. Like, so we're not saying that what this other person said isn't true, but what we're saying is the reason that that person maybe is giving us a piece of information is because they have a narrative that they're trying to get out there. It's not our jobs as journalists in local news to be the arm piece or the spokesperson for a business or the government or law enforcement. It's our job to make sure that our community understands what's going on. You can want to trust law enforcement or a business or whatever, and you certainly are going to give them every opportunity to tell you exactly what happened. But if you look at what happened, for instance, in Minneapolis with George Floyd, if you look at the initial press releases that came out of that department, it doesn't exactly line up with what we saw on video, right? And so, so I think that the lens I look at it is in, in this, it's cliche, but it's true. I want to trust 
but I also want to verify. And I hear that come from journalists all the time. And it's exactly the right thing to talk about. You know, like, like, I think that it's, 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 it's completely reasonable to be a little skeptical of people and their motivations. We have really smart readers here in Madison, Wisconsin, though. And so what we need to make sure is that um, if we're getting a story from somebody, we got to go, what's the other side of that story? Who would know if this is true? And so you find out, you know, who are the three or four people who maybe would have seen that thing? Or is there another officer who is there that we can talk to? Or is there a rival business that has something to say about it? Um, but you know, trust, but verify. And I enter into these conversations. Like I want to believe everybody when they tell me something, but I know that that's just not a luxury that we have to have, which is why we have a conversation all the time as a local news organization. And as a company that, you know, you better get your sourcing, right. You better make sure that we're balanced and fair about things. And, you know, you always want to keep your ear open, but just hearing one piece of information doesn't mean that you spit it out over here. You have to you know, in, in a situation like that, you just simply have to find other people who know what they're talking about. We push ourselves to do that all the time. Okay. And before we move on from this topic, you talked about a level three story. So you did level one, level two. What's a level three story? So then a level three story is something that we probably are, are reporting on for, you know, anywhere from a couple of weeks to several months. Uh, we're talking about dozens of sources. We're talking about probably a dozen rounds of rewrites and re-editing. And, and they're probably also a story that not only has like a shelf life of about a month, but also probably lends itself to five to 50 follow-up stories. And so, you know, you go from the breaking news story, it's in the moment, it's happening now, you've got to know about it, to a level two story where it's, this is probably something we're going to talk about maybe for a, for a week. And then we, we certainly always want to make sure that we have longer projects going too, because we know that we have to have all three. People need to know what's going on now, right now. Uh, people want to know um, some of the trends that are going on this week, this month. But I think that people really value news organizations that still do in-depth reporting, investigations, enterprise pieces. And I know here in Madison, we try to make sure that our reporters are working on something on all three phases at all times. So that's that's when I talk about a level one, level two, level three. That's what we're talking about. So, Jason, so you've described all these different guardrails that exist within the process of journalism to ensure that the information is accurate. Um, journalists themselves getting reliable sources, getting multiple reliable sources, you know, going through documents, etc. Editors, you know, multiple editors checking on all of this information, all these sources, etc. This collaborative process where lots of folks are, are, are triangulating this information with a variety of sources and, and, and documents, etc. Um, can you talk about the extra guardrail that sometimes exists for, you know, really sensitive, really explosive stories and the, the legal aspect of it? So lawyers maybe wanting to say, hey, let's take a look at this to make sure that everything is absolutely buttoned up so that you know, we don't get sued out of existence as a paper. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and it's something that we take really seriously uh, in our corporate uh, in our corporate space. Uh, you know, Lee is based in Davenport, Iowa. And so we have a great legal team that, that we work with when whenever it gets that we have we have this we have this um, 
we have this phrase in our company, and I, I'm not sure if I can say the name of our HR uh, vice president, but I, I'm probably going to because it's public information and anybody can look at uh, our annual report. But we always talk about when in doubt, call Astrid. And Astrid is our vice president of, of HR, and she also has a great connection with our legal team. And so, you know, call Astrid. And, and if there's any doubt, call her. You can talk about it with her. Um, and, and if there's a, a need that she feels like, uh, to get a legal team involved, we want to make sure that we do that. Um, I think back in the day, I think probably every local news organization had like a local attorney that they worked with. Um, we don't anymore. We have, we have corporate attorneys and that doesn't make it any less important that we're vetting these really highly controversial, sensitive stories. Um, because this is something we have to do. I mean, I, I said before, we don't know every darn thing and we got to be humble, stay humble. And I think that's a part of it, right? I mean, like you're acknowledging we think we have it right. We need help with this. I think as a society right now, it's never been more important uh, or maybe maybe that's not the right way to say it. But I think I think in our country right now, it's never been more acceptable to raise your hand and say, I need some help. And so I think as journalists, we need to do that, too. We think we have it buttoned up. We think we've got the story the right way. Um, but if there's any doubt, you need to take that extra step because the second you publish something that doesn't pass the smell test or could put you in jeopardy of a lawsuit or losing half your audience because what you did just wasn't fair, it wasn't right, you're done. And and you're only as good as, as your word. And if people can't trust you, um, they're not going to come back and, and, and they're not going to support local journalism. They're not going to support your, your news organization. They're not going to support the company. And so, yeah, I mean, there's there are definitely situations where we have to lawyer up, as 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 we would say in the business. Um, I think here in Madison, that's that's not something that we do all the time. But and I'm not going to get into the specifics of the stories. But we're also we've got two stories right now. Um, you know, I know for sure in the company that that are going through a legal process. I will also say as well. We get lawyers involved a lot when we can't get information, right? I mean, like, that's another big part of this. Like, when we put, uh, you know, when we try to FOIA with, with, with open records requests and we get a response back, uh, that says, Hey, we're not going to give you this information. And here's why we're not going to give you this information. Sometimes, sometimes they're right, but sometimes they simply don't want to give us the information that we know we're legally entitled to, or it's, they want to charge us $5,000 for copies of a report. Like it's preposterous. And so during situations like with a difficult story or when we're trying to get our hands on essential information for our community and somebody in power isn't going to give us that information, we need to ask questions and we need to ask them fast. And the only way that we can do that is to loop in our HR and our legal team because they're smarter than we are. And at least when it comes to the legalities of this. And so that's part of being humble, I think, as journalists, where raise your hand, loop in the appropriate people. Maybe you're right about something. Maybe you're wrong. 
but I'm not going to pretend like I know everything. And, and that's when I know we've got to reach out to experts. And again, I just want to say, I think our society expects that today. I mean, we, we need to raise our hands and say, we don't know everything. We need some help. And thankfully, we work with a really smart HR and legal team uh, with Lee Enterprises who I can tell you 24 hours a day, if we needed help, there's somebody that we could call, even if it was an urgent story that we needed an answer on right away. We have those resources at our disposal and we want to make sure we're taking advantage of them whenever we feel like it's necessary. Now, you know, sometimes uh, we get laughed out of the room and it's like, yeah, you're fine. Like, why are you even asking us about this? Like, publish this story. And then we laugh and we say, Okay, um, but I would say more times than not, it results in a very serious and productive conversation about here's what you're like, here's what you're saying, here's the information you're putting out there, this is how the other party could perceive it. Maybe we want to rework some things, maybe we want to talk to some more people, maybe we want to not say this. And so I think that that's a really important part of what we do. It's not something that we do every hour of every day, but it's something that we always are thinking about. And thankfully, I work for a company that 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 treats that as uh, as, as something that's really paramount and, and important for us, and and has those resources to us uh, available at all times. I think everyone needs an Astrid, right? Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> having needs an Astrid—that's Astrid, for everyone sure. Needs an Astrid. <laughs> I mean, because having an Astrid not only provides the journalists with um, support, but also should be a comfort to all of your readers yep. to know that this has been thoroughly vetted and therefore is trustworthy. And that kind of gets to the next question, which is because trust in institutions writ large around the country is is decaying, how do you see your role in local news as being vital to um, repairing the decaying trust in institutions? So I think the one thing that I'd want to start out by saying is that I, I, I heard from somebody really smart a long time ago, um, suit up and show up, right? Suit up and show up. And what that means to me is that every single day, whether you feel like it or not, there are certain steps that you have to take to be successful, to put accurate information out into the world, to make sure that you're serving, serving your community the right way, even if you don't feel like it, even if there's an easier path to go, there are certain steps you have to take all the time to make sure that you're not right 95% of the time, you're right all the time because people rely on that. And by the way, if you get something wrong, you have to stand up in the middle of a room right away and say, I'm wrong, we got it wrong. Here's the right information and we're really sorry. I think that's a big part of what we do, too. Um, I know that we're fortunate in Madison to have a readership uh, predominantly, I think, that trusts us and believes in us. And I don't think that we'd have the digital subscription numbers or the daily audience that we have if people didn't trust us. I mean, we're very well read. And I'd like to think that we're very well respected. And it's because we go through these rigorous processes every single day um, to do that. Uh, because of the last six, seven, ten years, I think there is a natural, um, a natural mistrust of some media outlets um, or purported media outlets. But I know that the work that we do here in Lee Enterprises, and, and specifically the work that we're doing here in Madison, is if we know that's going on over here and we can't ignore it, it's a, it's a real thing, which is why we have to vet our sources, which we talked about earlier. But if we know that's going on over here, what can we do on the other side 
to counteract that, to show that, okay, you might have seen this on TV. You might have read this on the internet. You might have seen three stories other places that weren't true. Here's why you can believe us. Because everything that we want to do as an organization is to make sure that our community is well-informed and to make sure that we have a natural trust with our audience members. Because again, the second we lose that, we're done. And, and it's really hard to get it back. And so it's something that's it's important to us. And listen, you know, the, the mistrust of media, the mistrust of, 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 of true information like we're seeing with with uh, with the vaccine situation right now around around the country. Um, I think all that I could say on that front is um, it's unfortunate that there are some news organizations that people don't feel like they can trust. But I can only tie my own shoes and I can only be responsible for the people that I surround myself with. And that our news organization here in Madison and Lee Enterprise surrounds ourselves with. And so for us, not Fox News, not MSNBC, but for us, we're not going to speak for anybody else. But for us and Lee Enterprises, we know how important that trust is. And we're sure as heck not going to lose it by taking shortcuts. And that's one of the reasons why we're constantly checking and double checking ourselves and trying to do new things with the community that will help show them the, this news organization is really invested in this community and the truth. And we can never stop doing that because the second we stop doing that, we lose trust. And when the trust is gone, whether it's in a personal relationship or with a brand or with a news organization, it's really hard to get back. We can't afford that. We've got to be open, transparent, and always looking for new voices Um because it's, it's, it's never been more important, by the way. And it's also been never more important to support local journalism by buying a digital subscription, by paying for the print product. And, and this is a business, after all. People aren't going to pay for our products if they can't trust us. And so we have to maintain that trust if we want to thrive as a business. We are thriving as a business, despite whatever you might hear. We're having a fantastic year, but it's something that we can't let our foot off the gas on for a minute. I'm actually working on a chapter of a book right now where I talk about the different financial like models. And for news, it's rooted in credibility. Whereas for partisan stuff, it's rooted on, you know, opinion and confirm, like feeding the beast of confirmation bias, which are two totally different things. And so I was going to ask you about that, but you just answered it. So that was perfect. <laughs> yeah. Well, great. I'm happy to help. Yeah, that was great. All right, Jason. Well, before we let you go, we will lighten it up a bit. I love movies about good journalism. One of my favorite all-time movies is Spotlight. So what is your favorite movie about journalism? Uh, all the president's men. I mean, it's kind of, so for me, newspaper movies are kind of like, uh, kind of like sports movies. I like, I'm going to watch them all. I like them all. <laughs> sure. I think they're great. You know, they could come out with a, with a Creed part 17 when I'm 70 years old. <laughs> Not sure I would go see it. Um, you know, I saw spotlight with a couple of colleagues, um, when I was the editor at the Appleton Post Crescent and it was a, it was a moving experience. It's, it's an incredible film, but. You know, I don't want to go all cliche on folks, but I watched uh, All the President's Men for the first time when I was 16 years old in my uh, living room with my mom. And mm-hmm. um, and of course, you know, we were learning about Watergate at the time in, in, in high school. And, you know, I remember my mom telling me before we watched the movie, she's like, Robert Redford does more acting with his eyes than some people do with 50 lines of dialogue. And I didn't really know what she meant 
And obviously, Robert Redford is uh, quite quite fetching, uh, but uh, at least my mom thought so. Um, but she's not wrong. No, she's <laughs> not wrong. She's, <laughs> she's not. He's, wrong. he's quite he's quite handsome. Um, but uh, for me, I watched that film and. You know, it was riveting to me. It was as dramatic as anything I had ever seen in my entire life on film. I'm a huge movie buff. I watch everything that comes out, at, at, at least however much of it I can. I've got like a list of five things I need to watch this weekend, actually. But for some reason, you know, it could be whatever mood you're in at the time or whatever your last conversation you had or maybe the last thing you watched, all these different things kind of come into play when it comes to how you enjoy or experience something. So for whatever the reason, um, when I saw that film when I was 16, 17 years old in high school in my parents' living room in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, I thought it was I thought it was like The Godfather. I couldn't believe how good it was. I couldn't believe how important it was. And I couldn't believe how moved I was at the end of the film. And so Spotlight's amazing deserving of every award it got. I've rewatched it three or four times. There are a lot of other journalism movies that are really strong, but, you know, just like I will probably always tell people that the empire strikes back is the best movie that I've ever seen because it was the first movie I ever saw. Um, All the president's men will always be the best journalism movie I've ever seen because it was something that moved me and probably changed uh, the trajectory of how I thought about the newspaper I was reading at my parents' Uh, breakfast table every morning over oatmeal and a banana. Well, I think that's a wonderful, wonderful place to end. And um, Jason, Adrians, thank you so much for joining us. This was fantastic. Hey, listen, you guys are worth it. My pleasure. Again, love the pod uh, and and really happy we were able to spend time with each other today. And uh, best of luck to you guys moving forward. You got a great product. Thank you so much, Jason. I really enjoyed that conversation. And we're going to keep this moving along here on this supersized episode. Up next, we have Judy Kurtz, who has been a newspaper columnist, television commentator, and is currently an entertainment reporter for The Hill, where she writes the In the Know column. A graduate of New York University and Georgetown University, she has worked for and contributed to a variety of outlets, including Fox 5 in Washington, Fox 45 in Baltimore, Sirius XM Satellite Radio, E! News, and People Magazine, among other outlets. We'll talk with Judy Kurtz up next. Judy Kurtz, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So glad to talk with you. I am so excited to be interviewing you because you write the In the Know column for The Hill, which I will cop to is always the first place that I go. Um, And I know that that's the case for a lot of people. So um, because your column covers the kind of the lighter side sometimes, um, but you also delve into serious topics. And right now we're so polarized. We're so angry. Um, does trying to find kind of a lighter approach make it make your job more difficult or does it make it easier? Um, well, these days that I'm not, uh, 
you know, scouring for content. Let's just say that there's plenty <laughs> um, out there. It makes my days very busy. And it's, are the two of you suggesting Washington's gotten crazier? Is that what you two are saying? You know, it it, it just might have. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to imagine um, it getting any nuttier than it already was. But these past, you know, the Trump era was especially. Um, full of material, let's just say content, <laughs> content full. Um, and now with a new administration, of course, and a lot of serious issues going on um, that we delve into in the policy sections of the Hill, which are very serious. Um, we, we have plenty of other content to fill up uh, in the know. Um, is it harder to take a lighter approach? I, I think at times it can be, especially when you have um, really, uh, you know, events that are gripping the country on January 6th, um, you know, we're not going to take a lighter <laughs> approach to uh, our coverage of that. Um, a pandemic. Oh, yeah, that thing um, <laughs> that everyone on this planet is dealing with right now. Um, you know, we're, we take a different angle in the column, um, just, you know, about the um celebrities, the public voices that are speaking out against those things. Um, in terms of the other coverage, though, everyone needs to have a little lightness <laughs> in their lives um, with everything that's going on. And I think um, a lot of the entertainment coverage, the intersection of Hollywood um, and politics and Washington um, that I focus on gives people that uh, that little bit of levity in an otherwise very buttoned up uh, world of Washington. So, you know, I, I worked, I'm from DC originally, and I worked at C-SPAN in the early 1990s. And I remember when a, a celebrity would come onto the Hill, like everyone stopped and like, you know, just gathered around like it was the sighting of, you know, the spotted owl. And and it was just everyone was so breathless. It feels like there's just a lot more. There are a lot more celebrities now coming to Washington. Is that do you, do you feel like that's true? Absolutely. Where you're right, it used to be like a unicorn um, mm -hmm. <laughs> with any sort of A-lister making their way to the nation's capital. Um, these days, of course, I'm talking pre-pandemic. Um that's changed. And it seems like every other week, you have a Hollywood star lobbying for a passion project on the Hill, you have a red carpet movie premiere with all the Washington DC focused uh, shows we had the last few years with, you know, House of Cards and Veep, mm -hmm. um, uh, Madam Secretary, there's a lot of um, shows, maybe not filmed here, but DC adjacent, and um, the premieres would be in town. A lot of movies that are, are based around Washington. Um, but we have had a lot more uh, of a celebrity element. And it's interesting because when uh, a Hollywood star comes to DC, you know, uh, lots of fans on the Hill, you hear a lot of like, you know, chatter and oohs and ahs of, uh, you know, Charlize Theron or Ben Affleck or whoever it is on the Hill. And then for the celebrities, 
the lawmakers are kind of the stars in their mind because there are these right. folks who have all the power and who they've heard of and have seen on TV. Um, so they're getting kind of their, their fangirling or fanboying <laughs> after uh, Chuck Schumer and, and, um, and Adam Schiff. <laughs> uh, so it's an interesting element uh, uh, contrast we have going on. I'm always looking for um, guests to say a sentence that's never been uttered in the English language fangirling Chuck Schumer. That was a good one. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> He'll probably love that too. <laughs> so we had Jason Adrians on earlier and he was describing the process that uh, his papers go through to report and to verify stories. Uh, as an entertainment reporter, can you talk a little bit about the process that you go through, you know, receiving a tip, verifying it, et cetera, before you go to print? Um, it, it's so hard to say a particular process because every story is so incredibly different, especially these days. Um, just everyone being in this remote working situation. Um, I think I'm trying to think of like a example I could give in terms of the breakdown of how we go about stories for a lot, a lot of what I do, which in a large part is gossip, um, will get a tip. And um, rather than just report out <laughs> what I'm hearing, you have to do a lot of uh, legwork to be able to report it. So sometimes I'll have an amazing tip, an amazing story. And if I can't do the reporting and get the sourcing for it, I can't run it. And I've had so many of those uh you know, I know in my head is <laughs> probably true, but um, obviously, as a journalist, you can't go with it unless you have the reporting to back it up. Um, so that's often something I face just in my unique gossip columnist bubble um, is that we hear a lot, but we can't necessarily report everything uh, we're hearing. So if I get a tip, I do some digging. I talk to folks related to um, if it's a particular lawmaker or celebrity. Um, I get in their orbit and try to do some digging around it to confirm whatever I'm hearing. And uh, it goes through a, a thorough editing process, especially if it's something, uh, you know, more uh, high profile or uh potentially embarrassing um, uh, before we go put it up on on um, the web or in the paper. I've been at the Hill for 10 years. So um, at this point, I have, you know, developed a lot of sources. And that plays a big part in it is if you've had um, or a source who's been reliable for a decade, um, that would carry more weight than someone who's giving an anonymous tip. Um, you want multiple sources on a story, um, and you, uh, the editors are phenomenal, um, not to blow smoke, but they help, um, you know, guide the process or push me in the right direction. Sometimes, um, they will think to go to, in a different direction that I wouldn't have considered otherwise. Um, so in, unless I'm comfortable with it, we're, we're not going to run it. And it, it depends on the story, of course, and it depends on what you're covering, but you have to have usually more than one solid source uh, in order to go with it. 
Did you read the Olivia Nuzzi piece about anonymous sourcing? She had an interesting piece in New York Magazine about the use in Washington of anonymous sourcing because so many, particularly in the Trump administration, so many people wanted to tell these stories, but they could not, um, you know, with attribution because they were so fearful of, you know, being yelled at and or fired or worse, right? Doxed, you know, something like that. Um, and so I, I think that she was really doing an interesting job of laying out how important anonymous sources can be and how you know you can trust some people and with others you you have to, you know, verify and, and find another person to back them up. Um, but I think for those outside the beltway, that's it it felt um more difficult to understand. Um, so can you talk about your own use of anonymous sourcing and and how valuable that can be and how you have to know not only that your source is legit, but that your editors probably have to know that your source is legit also in order for the piece to be released? Sure. Um, anonymous sourcing for a gossip columnist is huge. Um, but believe it or not, uh, this may strike people as odd. I, I actually don't rely as much on anonymous sources and what I do. Um, I tend to find for myself um, that the most successful stories are one I've, ones that I've enterprised, meaning that I will have a story idea um, and will then report it out um, versus getting an anonymous tip about someone and then it's almost like you're working backwards when you get an anonymous tip that, um, you know, it's, you're, if you're the detective, you have to kind of take a step back and um, then find out the pieces of the story um, to get to the end of it. Um, so I've found that the stories that I organically have come up with tend to work better um, than tracking down an honest test, which ought, which oftentimes don't lead to anything. Um, you know, DC, everyone has an agenda. And a lot of times, you'll hear chatter of something. And it's because this person, you know, wants to get out in the press that about someone that they have beef with. Um, you have to kind of uh, weigh that in anything, any tips that you get. Um, where is this coming from? And why Why is this a story? And why does the person who is tipping you um, want this to be a story? So I think for me, the stories that I um, have worked on and have come up with tend to work better. Did you ever read the book, The List? No. <gasps> okay, I will. I'm going to send you. This is going to be my thank you gift to you. You are going to either love it or you're going to hate it. I can't accept anything over twenty five bucks. Tons. No, it's. I think it's. It's a paperback. I think we're good. It's like twelve ninety five. Yeah, but it's a. It's a fictional novel about um, a young woman who's the gossip columnist for basically Politico. Oh, oh, oh Karen Tanabe's book. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. I'm sorry. I went to her book party again. Like I'm the permanent baby brain. That's quite all right. Yeah. I'm going to have to think of a better thank you gift. Um, did you, what did you, did you like it? Or do you remember reading it at all? Or? I remember um, when it came out, I was still a, the gossip columnist at the Hill. And um, 
I remember relating. <laughs> I knew kind of <laughs> some of the figures that, you know, okay. it, it was a novel, but she injected some of her personal experience. Yeah, I thought it was really, I liked it. I thought it was really fun. Um, okay. Yeah, she's uh, a big time so author now, by the way. She, uh, one of her, she is. Her, um, one of her recent books got picked up by Reese Witherspoon's production company. No kidding. Yeah. I just yeah. finished the one, uh, I think it was before the list. I think it was her first novel about um, a young woman who gets fired from Sotheby's and goes back home to live in Rhode Island. And it's so much fun. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really a very smart read. She's a, she's a smart cookie. Um, so I grew up in D.C., and um, my husband likes to say that I play by 90s rules, but I'm going to even go a decade earlier and say when I was growing up, it was the 80s. And I remember because my parents were not involved in politics, but my friends' parents kind of were. And the parties that they would have that I would get to go to, you know, as long as we behaved like we could go to them. There would be Democrats and Republicans, and it just was a, a very social like, you know, a social register kind of thing where everybody was walking around and smoking inside. It was a different, it was a very different time. Um, I feel like because of the polarization, that kind of bipartisan socializing is also gone, right? And I know that there have been many folks involved in politics who say that that is one of the causes and then kind of in a loop, like one of the reinforcements of our polarization is that nobody's getting together to go to these parties. Nobody's having dinner. You know, Pamela Harriman was the great hostess who would throw these, you know, huge dinners and bring together people who were in warring factions in order to sit down across a table and say, okay, we disagree on these things, but you're still a human being. And isn't this a really great piece of roast beef? So have you found that to be, I'm, I'm sure it's true. Have you found it to be increasing in the last 10 years that you've been working on the Hill? And what do you make of it? Do you think it's problematic? Yeah, I, like you, Allison, am a product of Washington, a swamp creature, if you will. <laughs> um, so I know the parties oh, like that. you're, you're yeah. speaking of. And, you know, I had this crazy DC bubble upbringing where like my sister was friends with one of the um, kids of someone who worked in the Clinton administration and like was hanging out in the Oval Office with Socks the cat, you know, just like not normal, <laughs> um, but stuff like that. Um, yeah, there's certainly the lack of um, mingling between um, political enemies, I think plays a big part in the polarization that we're seeing. But to be honest, when I first started The Hill, it was tending to go that way anyway. Um, you know, there were a few events where I remember like the, the comms director for the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, and the comms director for the RNC, the Republican National Committee, had like a charity event together where they, I, I forget what it was, but they were both going to like shave their heads for charity or something. Uh, and I feel like you would never, never see that right now. Um, anything like that happening. Um, so yeah, there aren't as many get togethers, I would say that all are welcome, but you do, there is still some of that um, um, weirdness where you go to social functions and, you know, Kellyanne Conway's a, a big event for, it was like meet the press's 
50th anniversary, I want to say. And she's just chatting up amongst reporters and, you know, other um, political figures. Um, but there isn't that much of it anymore. And especially now with the pandemic, people who are already in their, you know, on their own islands are even more so in not only their own space, but like the social media bubble that they live in, um, only getting, mm. you know, their own partisan um, leanings fed back to them. So there's certainly no socializing going on right now, and especially no um, no socializing between the political parties. And I think that is a big part of the polarization problem. Um, in doing some research on you, um, very, very light, very light stalking, I swear. Um, <laughs> I read this great piece on something I've never heard of, the DC Fun Employed. Uh, which was just a terrific, it was just a little mini, mini piece of uh, on you. And it was discussing with several years ago, how many different jobs you were juggling, you know, at the same time. And it reminded me of a time about a decade ago, I, I took probably less than that, I took a class on a tour of the DC um, Fox News Bureau, because I have a lot of friends who work there. And so my friend Jacqueline, um, gave us the tour. And at the end, I said, okay, where do you see media going? And she said, well, right now I'm a producer, but I also have to blog. I have to, you know, Twitter was just up and running. She's like, I have to tweet. I have to, you know, do all of this sort of stuff. And it just felt what she was saying 10 years ago felt exhausting. And then I was reading how many different jobs you have. And I thought, oh my gosh, how do you have time? How, how do you have time to have a life outside of all of this because you've got to you've got to write your stories you've got to tweet them out you have to respond to people you you probably have to do interviews about them i mean it just feels overwhelming so can you speak to just how big the job has gotten well i'll preface it by saying people have a, a thousand times harder if not more in many other professions than i have it so i am not discounting you know, a lot of other jobs are so much tougher than anything that I do or will ever do. Um, that being said, um, it a lot is involved in the job these days. I, but you, if you get into journalism and you haven't figured that out, then you're probably not in the right profession. Um, <laughs> I remember right out of college, I applied to, I don't know, maybe a hundred different I was in local it was in TV news wanted to be in TV news originally um I applied to maybe a hundred TV stations and back in those days you like have a physical videotape that you mail out to um to news directors across the country and I was uh, yearning to get this job in um Harrisonburg Virginia which is a tiny market um you start news you you start out like in very small cities and then work your way up to larger markets that's the idea at least um so i one of the only interviews i got um at all out of college was for a teeny station and it paid i think nineteen thousand dollars a year and you were a one woman band so that means you shoot your own stories with the camera, which were, you know, back in a little while ago, it was like a, 
you know, 20 to 30 pound camera. Uh, you edit your own stories, you report your own stories, you're your own makeup artist um, on these stories. So, but that seemed like a dream to me. I didn't get the job so and was crushed as a result. Um, but doing all those things um, was part of the gig back then, just basically doing everything. Um, in a weird way, I like having the control of uh, doing everything. Um, and that is appealing to me. Maybe it's like the my type A side um, being especially strong. But uh, and it's even more so now that you know you might not be shooting and editing and reporting your own stories, but um, a large part of the job is having a social media presence and doing TV interviews. And um, in addition to your full time job, which is reporting the story. And for me, a lot of what I do, at least pre COVID was um, social events. And a lot of my coverage stems from uh, the night side uh, of things and going to the movie premieres and covering the whispers that are being said at uh, the book party. Um, So it's a nonstop 24 seven role. But the secret is I love it and I wouldn't have it any other way. And if I get paid for it, that's even better because I'm doing what I love. Can you talk about the impact of social media on being a gossip columnist? Because I imagine that it must make it incredibly hard. And at the same time, you also get really good ideas. Social media has been... um, great and horrible at the same time for journalism. Blessing you. Um, you know, just from the day to day, for a lot of what I do, I'd say five years ago, 10 years ago, I would go to an event at night and I, um, there'd be, you know, I'd get a really great quote that a really good story, um, maybe even like a breaking news kind of item. Um, and a few years ago, I probably could have held that item, like as in like not published the story immediately. I could wait till the next morning when more people might be awake if it's a night event that I was covering. Um, But not anymore. Now, if I get something, it has to go out pretty quickly. Otherwise, it's going to get picked up by other people who are, you know, around. A few years ago, I was at I think it was a red carpet event with, I want to say Denzel Washington. And I asked him about, he was the subject of um, like a quote unquote fake news story and how he felt about that. And he went off on the media in general um, and gave some uh, really shocking comments and you know, normally I would love to like work on that story and kind of massage it and um, have a really, um, a really good piece from it. And it, someone was recording my interview on their phone and the video of it went out, you know, like as I was doing it, uh, as I was doing the interview with him. So you can't hold anything, um, which in my, you know, for my column that can that can be rough. Sometimes you have to have um, more of an urgency in getting stuff out because of social media. On the and another challenge that we face as journalists in social media is, um, whereas a celebrity or a lawmaker might have once 
um, talk to a journalist to get their story out. Now, obviously, just like everyone else, they have their own platform um, to push out whatever narrative they want um, and control um, the story more uh, on their you know, Twitter feed or on Facebook or Instagram. Um, so that's a challenge too, is that the traditional avenues for, um, for, uh, people who want to be, get the message out are changing because of social media on the flip side, especially during COVID, um, it's been a lifeline and, you know, um, people can weigh in, uh, uh, you know, of course, the past four years, we lived by the tweet, died by the tweet um, with the president's um, vocal Twitter page. Um, so there is uh, like the conversations always going on. There's not um, there are always people talking online. So that's helpful, too. Um, do you feel with the insurrection, with the really, really tough language of politicians towards media. Do you feel your a heightened sense of um, insecurity as a media person? Do you does, is has the Hill taken security more seriously? And if the answer to both those questions is no, uh, does your family worry about you more? I mean, is there sort of this sense that like you know it's a more dangerous world to be a, a journalist? I, I think there's no question that. Um, it is a little bit scarier of a world for journalists um, in recent history than it has been in the past. Um, that being said, my I had colleagues who were at the Capitol on January 6th um, who uh, I, of course, was terrified for, um, you know, not knowing what was going to happen. Um, and security is always an issue. I remember in covering the um, the last convention, well, not the last ones, the 2016 uh, political convention, security was a, a huge concern. And the Hill took a lot of um, security precautions because of that, because they didn't know um, if there would be violence or protests at uh, both of the conventions. Um, so it's just it's now just part of the everyday. You have to um, be much more aware of, with social media of what you're posting and um, and not divulging too much about your your personal life. Um, and you just have to be more mindful of people's opinions on the press, which are are not always positive. Well, Judy, I hate to end on that somewhat somber tone, but uh, this was a great conversation. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Okay. Well, in light of what we've discussed on today's pod, we want to forego our normal outro. And I'm going to read you a piece that Allie and I wrote with our colleagues, Michael Anthony Dees, a former Chicago Tribune editor and a faculty member in the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University as well as Stephen Sloman, a faculty member at Brown University. This piece was titled, Healthy News Diets Help Guard Against the Dangers of Misinformation. It was published in the June 13, 2021 edition of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. 
I'm going to read you excerpts. These are long excerpts, so if you want to bow out of this episode at this point, I understand. But uh, for those who want to stick around, here goes. We find ourselves in a post-truth age where feelings are becoming more important than facts for many. People are increasingly comfortable bending reality to their beliefs, and millions of Americans have lost faith in notions of facts and expertise. A major contributing factor to these trends is the manner in which the news media landscape has changed in recent decades. This should be the age of good information. After all, Americans have easier access to factual information, and more of it, than ever before. But many have a difficult time identifying what is reliable and what is not, and or have become addicted to the junk. Imagine sitting at a table in a restaurant. Along comes your server with a plate of healthy food and places it on your table. At this point, 100% of the food in front of you is healthy. But before you can take a bite, another server places three more plates on the table containing unhealthy food. Now, only 25% of the food on your table is good for you. If you desire to eat healthy during this meal, have these additional plates made your goal less attainable? Only if A, you are unable to identify which plate contains the healthy food, and or B, you are unable to resist the temptation to eat off of the other plates. This is a good metaphor for the current news media landscape. The human brain is not wired to do a very good job of identifying reliable news sources. Our hardwired cognitive biases ensure that what we hope to be true about the world biases our perceptions of what actually is true. Generally, humans rarely evaluate whether information they receive is true or not. When we do, we tend to look for information that confirms our existing beliefs, avoid information that does not, and interpret information to make it consistent with what we already believe. We look for information that makes us feel good about ourselves and sheds a positive light on the groups to which we belong. When our beliefs and reality are misaligned, one would think we would change our beliefs to match reality, but instead we often try to bend reality to fit our pre-existing views. Humans want their own beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors to be in harmony, and prefer for them to be in harmony with those around them. Indeed, we often just channel the people around us without thinking through the issues ourselves. We try to avoid information that might destabilize our view of the world and or threaten our core beliefs, identities, and deeply held opinions. When this information makes it to us anyway, we tend to interpret it in a way that is as favorable to our sense of self as possible. As social psychologist Jonathan Haidt notes, when the facts conflict with sacred values, almost everyone finds a way to stick with their values and reject the evidence. Humans have always had these cognitive biases, so why are we so worried about them at this particular moment? Because changes in our information ecosystem have unleashed them. In Jurassic Park, the dinosaurs do not pose too much of a threat to patrons when the security systems are working, but once Dennis Nedry deactivates them, well, Hold on to your butts. A variety of factors have removed the guardrails that kept our cognitive biases somewhat at bay. These include extreme partisanship, the dawn of the internet, a decline in trust in institutions which create and disseminate information, the decline of traditional news outlets and rise of partisan ones, such as cable news, talk radio, partisan websites, and the advent of social media. Because of all this, Many Americans now have difficulty differentiating legitimate journalism from biased partisanship, are locking themselves in ideological silos, and are becoming addicted to low-quality news sources. 
Luckily, there are tools that can help. There are a variety of online news literacy courses available from reputable places like the Pointer Institute and Stony Brook University. There are also several fact-checking websites, including Snopes, PolitiFact, FactCheck.org, AP FactCheck, and Washington Post FactChecker. While we believe all these things are valuable, we also know it is useful to have a shortcut. That's why we have compiled a list of 50 high-quality news outlets that provide reliable information with limited bias. It can be found at UtterlyModerateNetwork.com. Building a healthy news diet with a handful of these news outlets would limit the amount of misinformation and disinformation one is exposed to. Here is how we built our list of trustworthy news outlets. To be on the list, an outlet must pass all five of the credibility standards used by NewsGuard and cannot be rated outside of the green most reliable zone by AdFontes Media. Additionally, an outlet is disqualified if it is rated as hyperpartisan by either AdFontes Media or all sides. We consider using all three of these news ratings tools in conjunction to be akin to a Swiss cheese defense. While it is possible that one of these organizations could make a mistake in their analysis of a particular news outlet, it is highly unlikely that all three would give an unreliable outlet high marks. In a nutshell, these organizations employ multiple analysts to rate the content that individual news outlets produce. These ratings are rigorous, objective, and rule-based. Using the tools at our disposal in order to consume reliable information is one way to help in the battle against post-truth. There are no right or wrong answers to many of the big decisions facing our country. There are facts and data that support a variety of positions, but how this information should be prioritized is subjective. But whatever we decide to do, we should insist that the information we use to make our decisions is factual and of the highest possible quality. Misinformation and disinformation are demonstrably dangerous. They help diseases once thought to be a thing of the past to rear their ugly heads again. They destabilize democracies. This is not some minor problem, but it must be overcome.